This is Kristen O'Brien, Managing Editor at NFX, and you're listening to the NFX Podcast. We're talking about the power of network effects in this episode with Scott Cook, founder and chairman of Intuit, and James Courier, partner at NFX. About two years ago, Scott came to NFX to meet with James and discuss their shared interest in network effects. It was one of the most compelling conversations James has had with anyone on the topic. So today, we're at the Intuit headquarters in Mountain View, California to continue the conversation and make it public for the benefit of founders everywhere. Today, Scott Cook and I are talking through uh, network effects. And, uh, you know, um, the audience, Scott, is, is founders and mostly early stage founders. And so they're looking for practical tips, tools, stories, details, and uh, of things that they can use in their daily lives. And, uh, you know, two years ago, you and I had a chance to discover that we're both network effects wonks, right? We're students of network effects. And, uh, we had a great talk about them in detail, and there aren't that many people actually who have spent the time as you have to figure out the nuances and how they work and that sort of thing. And so I just thought it would be great for us to almost recreate our discussion about, about network effects so that founders could benefit from the sharing of, of some of the details about this stuff and some of the thinking. And just to set the stage so founders understand, are you investing, are you and your family office still investing in companies? Oh, we do some. Um, in the pre-K education field, we do a lot, as much as we can find, mm-hmm. as that's our kind of philanthropic purpose. Mm-hmm. And then on the side for personal portfolio, yeah, once, once in a while. Once in a while. Mm-hmm. You'll, and, and is there a particular type of thing you're looking for? Companies with network effects? Companies? Oh, gosh, you're always looking for companies with network yeah. effects. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, generally they won't be at the earliest stage because that's pre-establishing of a network effect. But So they might be, even when there's some evidence of market traction uh, and then a team in a business you can believe in. Got it, got it. And you've talked a lot about the need for founders to have their durable competitive advantages long term. What does that mean to you? You know, maybe there was a time when you could start a company and not have to worry about competitors. But in the world we live in today with giants that have such speed and agility and resources, whether it's Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, whether it's other startups, the, the vibrant startup infrastructure, you've got to assume that there are going to be other people trying to do the same thing as you either at the same time or once they see that it's successful. And if you don't have a source of durable advantage, well, you're a roadkill. All that work goes to nothing mm. and you get crushed. Yeah. So I don't, uh, and then uh, not only to survive, but to thrive, the size of your profit stream is largely a function of your size of durable advantage. Because if you don't have durable advantage, you'll have 18 competitors and they'll compete it down to uh, no economic return. And what forms does that durable advantage take? I mean. You know, one of the things that we did, we, we published um, a perspective that in the digital age, there's sort of four major things. If you discount IP, you know, particularly in software, it's tough to use IP. But you've got brand, you've got, in, you know, embedding where, you know, like an Oracle will embed their software in a company. Uh, you've got scale, like an Amazon just gets scale, so the prices get lower. And then you've got network effects. And we kind of posit that network effects are the greatest of the four. Do you have any way of looking at durable advantage like that, that, might be a framework that the founders could learn from? Yeah, it's similar. Uh, and the conclusion is exactly the same, that the, the one biggie, the giant in the room, are network effects. The others all have their flaws. So a 
traditional one was um, uh, fixed cost scale leverage. Um, but the, uh, that assumes that nobody else could put the fixed cost in. Well, today with the tech titans out there, they can put the fixed cost in in a wink, uh, in a blink. So fixed cost scale leverage assumes a capital-constrained world, and we live, at least in tech, with companies that are seemingly capital unconstrained. So that doesn't have the power it used to. Um, one that gets some discussion is uh, switching cost. You know, there was a time when certain companies would have unique access to a uh, source of supply, like De Beers with diamonds. Mm-hmm. But boy, you don't tend to see that anymore. And um, so, yeah, right, the assets of the new economy is just data and software, and all that moves very right, easily. Moves easily. And brand, I think, is uh, 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 is not a worthy defense at all. Mm-hmm. I've seen companies with phenomenal brands get crushed in a matter of years. I mean, go back to times that we remember in the early age of PC software. The best brands in the industry were Lotus and Lotus One Two Three, uh, Word Perfect, um, and Microsoft just crushed them in a matter of years. And they had the brands. So I don't think brand buys you very much. I mean, the best brand in search was you name it, Alta Vista or maybe Yahoo, and they're roadkill. So I just don't think. Brand matters that much anymore. Uh, it's too. We. I mean, in, in if you go back, if you look where brand used to matter a lot was in say consumer household products like those made uh, appear on a grocery or drugstore shelf, and those are product categories where the consumer already has been using the product for years, just ran out, has to rebuy. Um, the product only costs three bucks. They walk by that shelf twice a week. Okay, all you have to do to get them to try your brand is get them, they're going to reach out toward the shelf and they just have to move their hand 20 centimeters to pick up your brand. Okay, maybe brand image could make someone who's going to buy anyway move their hand 20 centimeters to buy your brand. But we're not talking about that world. The world we live in, there's no one's walking by a shelf. They didn't just run out of your product. You're trying to get them to do something new, generally if they've never done before. That's, so I, I just don't think brand is, uh, builds much advantage, nor is it much of a defense anymore. You need something more powerful. Like these network effects? Yes. Are there other things other than network effects that you like to, to rely on, or, or really are you focused on that? Um, well, if you, it's not something you like to rely on. There are brief times when if your idea is sufficiently different well, actually, let me speak to one source of invention that still does work, yeah. but they're rare. And that is, oh, I think there's an HBR piece that calls it um, a, a multi-factor process advantage. Mm. So this is something where you have a method of production that is very different than the rest of the industry and very hard to copy because it differs on so many attributes, mm. such as Southwest Airlines. Yes. Southwest Airlines has been the best performing U.S. airline for 30 years. And they use their labor different. They use capital different. They just, there are so many differences between how they operate versus a normal airline. And the other, and the other airlines are hidebound and union constrained. And so they just can't copy a superior method. Mm-hmm. So Southwest has retained a fairly durable advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Toyota production system is another. And the Toyota makes cars in the plant in a way that's fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. 
than the procedures used in normal auto plants. And, and famously, they've allowed the other car manufacturers to come into their factories Absolutely. and videotape and uh, spend as much time as they want, and yes, they're, un- yes. they're incapable of copying. And GM had a Toyota factory in the GM uh, footprint in the United States and had all the data mm. and visited. I learned about this in part from a GM executive who was flying out from Detroit to visit the uh, Numi plant that was here in the Bay Area. And the other automakers essentially haven't copied well. And you can see uh, companies like Danaher and Ford of who've copied the Toyota production system and reapplied them in their industry. Mm. I mean, Danaher has a stock growth track record much better than SAP, uh, on par with Intuit's stock growth since we went public 25 years ago. And yet Danaher works in industrial products and test equipment for uh, factories, Mm. not sexy businesses at all. But they've applied this multi-factored process advantage to real advantage. So that um, we might even look at an Apple or an, as Amazon might be. I would say Amazon has built a multi-factor uh, process advantage in software development. The speed with which they can move uh, and innovate in a large. It used to be you build a large software company and you get slow and stupid and non-innovative. Um, Amazon's kept speed and innovation, rampant innovation despite size. So I think there's something going on there special. But those are rare. Few companies. Uh, develop right. that. That's about culture and about hiring and it's yes. about a real determination yes. to do something right. different. And right, and a real invention of a better way that works that's yeah. generally totally against the way the rest of the world works. Right. So that's just not going to happen very yeah. often. Yeah, that's right. But it's powerful right. and those, that I think continues to work. Um, did Intuit have network effects at the beginning? Uh, and does it have network effects now? Yeah, I would say in um, uh, for all of my work and study of them, we don't have the strength and network effect position that I wish we had. So we were a paradigm difference that allowed us to beat the competitors in the 80s and early 90s. And then we had enough scale that we had some scale advantages. And then in, um, in QuickBooks, uh, we have developed a degree of, I'd say, a moderate network effect um, uh, in that accountants know QuickBooks and prefer it, so they recommend to their clients. Mm-hmm. There's more bookkeepers who know QuickBooks, mm-hmm. so they recommend to their clients. Mm-hmm. It's easier for the client to work with an accountant if you're on QuickBooks because they use QuickBooks. So we would have a, a moderate network effect advantage, <coughs> I would qualify that as. Uh, yeah, it's almost, um, it's probably not a, a protocol network advantage, which is a direct network correct, advantage, but it's, correct. but it's something like that, which is that there's some sort of standardization yes. Yes. And through the labor pool yes. that's through taking place. Yes. Yeah. And this has a degree of switching cost, and the switching cost here is um, the cost to learn a new uh, bookkeeping system. Yeah. Uh, just like languages have high switching costs, because once you learn a language, it's so much easier to just use that one than learn a new one. This is not on the same scale of difficulty of learning, but once you have learned how a, a system works like QuickBooks, it's so much easier to keep using it than to tr- have to learn a rival. Right. Um, so there's that groove in. Yeah. And then any new hiring manager is going to be taught by the marketplace that they should just hire a QuickBooks person. Right, yeah. yeah. Right. So that's sort of a two-sided yeah. protocol. It's yeah, so we get a, uh, a degree of what I'd call moderate effect of network effect there. Uh, Got it. And have you tried any others in the, in, the, in the business? Have you thought of adding any others, like a platform? I mean, I know that Intuit has a platform. Yes, like- and I, uh, we do have a developer <clears throat> platform, again, built around QuickBooks. Um, the and I'd say again that's moderate. We you know there's more systems that hook into QuickBooks. Thus QuickBooks, if you adopt it, gives you more um, data access and and interaction that's automated with other systems. 
so I'd say, again, that's a moderate level. Uh, uh, we've tried to make that stronger, and uh, I think maybe we'll discover out how, how to make that stronger. Um, but I have to say, I didn't... Uh, I want to ask how you first discovered network effects and became aware of them, and then I'll describe it. wasn't at Intuit that I discovered the yeah. power of network effects. It was elsewhere. So first, how did you get it? Yeah, uh, so we started a company in 99 that did not have network effects, and in the end, we sold it to a company that did have network effects. And when we got over there and saw how bad their management was, and they still had a $7 billion market cap, and this was monster.com, mm-hmm. um, that the fact that they still had $7 billion market cap and they were running it so poorly and no matter how they try to screw the company up, it still continued to chug along and produce a billion dollars of revenue and, and be worth so much that they were buying us, uh, not us buying them. It was a real shock to us. And so that was 2004 when we sort of said, whoa, this is a whole different paradigm. This is really durable. You can make all sorts of mistakes. You can go to sleep and wake up in the morning and your company's just bigger than it was before, more powerful than it was before. Um, so everything we want, want to do going forward has got to have these things. And so we started becoming students at that time. And uh, it's taken probably a decade to start to tease out all the different types because we've, we've heard about Metcalfe's law, and that, that only relates to direct network effects. But then there are these two-sided network effects, like the one you described that Intuit has with the labor market or a marketplace or a platform network effect or an asymptoting marketplace network effect. There's a, several of these two-sided network effects that are different from Metcalfe. And there's, there's a whole region around um, you know, data network effects that just haven't been measured or discussed yet. And so it's taken us all this time to sort of tease all that out. But how about you? When did you first discover these? Um, it was in the late 90s. I, for some crazy reasons, managed to be on the board of Amazon and eBay at the same time. Um, and eBay was, it just defied explanation. I, I remember I first came across eBay when they, they published books of this was the early days of the web. They published books that showed the amount of traffic and, and um, screens per pages per user for thousands of websites. Um, and I don't think it was a book. It was online. And I was just perusing to see which websites were getting the most activity and particularly which were getting the heaviest usage. And I was just scrolling down these pages online looking. And most of the uh, pages per visit were in the two or three range. So people barely used websites back then. And then I ran across this thing called eBay, E-B-A-Y. And then I get an email from Mae Whitman, and she said, hey, Scott, I've just joined this company as CEO of eBay. I'd love to come talk to you about you joining our board. I said, well, I don't know what eBay does, but I really want to learn. So, you know, I found out this amazing thing. They opened up a retail store, Pierre did, and he left it empty. He put nothing on the shelves. And the world came and filled it up with merchandise. Because it was kind of the original two-sided network uh, executed marketplace done in software. And it's just amazing how the thing grew. Mm. Then uh, I was, uh, uh, John Dorn and I were skiing in um, Aspen uh, over Christmas. And Jeff Bezos uh, emailed us saying, hey, I'm in town. I'd like to take you guys to dinner. So uh, we left our families. We had dinner with Jeff. Partway through, we said, Jeff, so why did you invite us to dinner? He said, well, I want you both to know that we have been secretly building our eBay killer. Mm. And we didn't want you to know, Scott, because you would have a conflict with that. But we will launch it on Tuesday. Um, and I'm sure you'll want to, of course, leave the eBay board because, you know, they're going to be toast. Um, uh, but So I wanted to give you that heads up. Nice. 
Very kind of him. Uh, yeah, uh, very, very much. And so I said, well, Jeff, you know, you're competent. You know how I love what you're doing. Amazon's phenomenal and you have uh, truly vanquished a number of competitors around you. And around you, 359 degrees, you have mediocre companies as potential places, categories you could enter, except one. We have a company with a powerful network effect. Um, this is not going to end very well. Um, but he was undaunted by my advice. Um, and so then I watched what happened. And it turns out that within a matter of a couple of months, the two most powerful companies in the digital world, which at the time were Yahoo and Amazon, mm -hmm. both decided to attack eBay with clones. And they had done excellent clones of eBay. In fact, the software was better. The sites looked better. They were, you know, these companies, eBay at the time looked kind of more like Craigslist. Mm -hmm. uh, and these two competitors from, uh, uh, had really slick working sites. Plus, they were being advertised from the most powerful homepages in the business. For several months, Yahoo's homepage, the most powerful page in the world, did nothing but advertise Yahoo auctions. Uh, plus a major pricing advantage. Uh, eBay at the time, take rate was around 6% of every transaction. The take rates at uh, Amazon and Yahoo were zero. It was free. So you would think that a free competitor advertised and delivered by the most powerful entrance in the world would crush little eBay. But in fact, the reverse happened. They bounced off. Nothing happened. eBay kept growing those guys couldn't get traction. Mm -hmm. Even though they were free and eBay charged six, you know, 600 basis points. So, um, and I said, that got my attention, saying there's something more powerful than I've ever seen in business. And then you started seeing the you know, Intel microprocessor, the Microsoft operating system, Word, and Microsoft Office. You started seeing these, uh, all of a sudden the picture came together of, shoot, there's a number of companies that have built some phenomenal competitive advantages where no attempt to disrupt them has had any effect, mm -hmm. and where their share positions get closer and closer to 100. This is an effect the world has never seen before, right. uh, except in a government-granted monopoly, uh, which is, are increasingly rare nowadays. Mm -hmm. So that's what got my attention, and then I started studying them in earnest. And that was sort of late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, 98. And did you stay on the Amazon board or the eBay board? Ultimately, I had to choose um, because the company stayed rivalrous, uh, and I elected to stay on the eBay board. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice, with the network effect. Now, eventually, Amazon has gotten very large and does have a big marketplace. More than 50% of their transactions are now in their two-sided marketplace. Um, but it just took 20 years. Yes, they decided to really embrace uh, the two-sided market. Um, the first merchant in the world ever to do that to really embrace, after having been a merchant where they put the merchandise on the shelf, mm -hmm. they embraced the two-sided where other people put merchandise in. Got it. So it was uh, a mental shift that they had to make first, and then when they came at it again in the late 2000s, well, they made it, it pretty quick. a little better. I mean, his, the whole move into, um, uh, uh, into Am uh, Amazon auctions was a move there. So Jeff got the, uh, Jeff is so smart. Mm -hmm. He got the mind shift early. Mm -hmm. He just had a, Work initially, they couldn't win by going head head first into eBay. They had to find a work, way to work around it. I see. Okay, they had to have a differentiated supply. Yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting, interesting. Um, so, uh, what was the most surprising thing you've ever learned about network effects? 
And these are great oh. founding stories. But. God, I'm still learning. There's so much. I think most of what we will know, we don't yet know. Um, I'd say the thing that's been surprising is how small the founding teams are of some of the great network effect businesses today. Uh, Pierre Omidyar worked alone to write and launched um, eBay uh, after what he says was a three-day weekend of work. So what's stunning is how tiny the teams were who built and launched the first versions yeah. of what became powerful network effects. Yeah. That just, uh, wow, the world's never seen something where so few can produce something of such global strength, mm -hmm. reach and strength. Right on the backs of this internet thing that yeah. someone else mm -hmm. built for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you can have small teams on the internet that don't amount to much. You can right. have big teams. Yeah. Here's, it's, that's been the biggest surprise to me. Yeah. Which size. also speaks to the capital efficiency cool. that you can get yes. from these companies. Huge. Which implies greater returns for the employees for their stock options, which implies greater returns for the investors. Absolutely. I mean, Pierre, uh, up till that time, the investor, uh, the investment that Benchmark made into, uh, uh, eBay was the single best venture investment ever made in world history. Hmm. Um, but also think of Pierre's thing. He, not only did he code it himself, he launched it himself, and he was the only employee for many months. Mm -hmm. Only when so many checks came in that he needed help cashing the checks yeah. did he finally hire somebody. So remarkable efficiency of both labor and capital. Yeah, yeah. And with these marketplace network effects, these two-sided ones, a lot of people have talked about the Twitter and the, the Facebook and the WhatsApp. These are, these are direct network effects where everyone's coming for the same thing. One Twitter account is the same as another. One Facebook account is the same as another. But when I go to an eBay, when I go to, a, you know, to buy something on Craigslist or sell something on Craigslist, I'm, those are two different types of people with two different yes. types of experiences. Yes. Um, I'd love to dive into a discussion of how some of these two-sided network effects work. Uh, in more detail, because you've got one going here with Intuit. Um, you've been on the board of eBay a long time, and, and you got to watch that grow up from the beginning. Um, I think, you know, the, the one-sided network effect or the, the direct network effect has been sort of overdone, but the, the two-sided hasn't been nearly as, as much discussed. And I think that, you know, that might be helpful to people to hear some of your thoughts about how you see those things playing out. Well, let's exchange thoughts. So one part is that uh, two-sided they're also n-sided, where there's more than two sides. So the classic one here would, is the Microsoft um, OS network effect. So say Microsoft Windows, where you had hardware makers, so makers of PCs, independent software developers, um, consumers, people who buy the machines, corporations and consumers, and then you had Microsoft. So they were actually orchestrating three sides. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, the thing the consumer chose then drove the hardware makers, which drove the software, and so they were able to orchestrate a three-way. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, two sides is um, uh, one part of a, what could be more complex. So that's the first observation. There yeah, can be sure. more than sure. um, two sides. <laughs> so what have you learned about yeah, I mean, two-sided? You know, the two-sided network effects are more prevalent than three-sided. Um, and in fact, I think the three-sided are less... Uh, common than the N-sided, where you might have a market network, where there's a whole bunch of different types of people mm -hmm. that are inside of an existing offline marketplace that we then digitize through a website and mobile apps. And uh, the, the three-sided is so difficult to get 
because they all have such strong independent ideas about what they want out of the marketplace. And typically when you're building these two-sided marketplaces, you basically are building two different companies at the same time. Okay, You have to satisfy the demand and you have to satisfy the supply at the same time in, this, in the appropriate volumes so that liquidity is achieved for both sides and people don't defect to someplace else. It's a very difficult plane to fly. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so flying that with three becomes astronomically even more difficult. And so we've seen very few of these three-sided marketplaces, as you describe, with Microsoft. But there you go. I mean, they've been around since 76, 78, and they're still worth $700 billion. It's very, very durable once you get it, but hard to do. <clears throat> We're now seeing more of these end-sided uh, marketplaces where you could have, <clears throat> let's say, a event planner with a photographer, with a, a, a venue, with mm-hmm. a caterer, a caterer mm-hmm. and all that. And so they can all coordinate and collaborate uh, using the software in ways that they couldn't have done before. And we're seeing that go in the travel industry. We're seeing that in the consulting industries, et cetera, et cetera. Because these are marketplaces where there's lots of independent workers. And you know, obviously Intuit and the software you have services a lot of these SMBs. And they are all in their own small networks um, that are offline today. And we could, we could help bring them online. So we're seeing... We're seeing that. The, um, the other challenge with these two-sided marketplaces, again, gets back to the issue of liquidity, where if I come and I list an object that I want to sell and it doesn't sell, then I might never come back. Or if, or if I come to find something and, and it's not there or it's not in the quantities or the prices that I want, then I won't come back. Um, balancing that and then paying both sides, essentially, with your equity or with your time to balance those out as you grow has proven really difficult. And so... As a result, we've seen a lot of success with companies like OpenTable or Salesforce who immediately put out a SaaS tool like you've done, mm-hmm. right, to put out SaaS for a whole group of, of users. And then you build up the platform. And then on top of the platform, you can stack uh, other applications. And that builds you a network effect um, that starts with a SaaS company first. But again, it takes a mental shift to then move into this new network effect type of a business. Yeah, let me uh, pick up on two of the themes you talked about because I think they're so right on. Uh, the first is you mentioned it's like running two companies at once. And I think that's quite true. I see companies, when I coach CEOs and our internal startups, um, they're often much more comfortable in looking at one side of the market and they tend to forget the other. Because um, of personality? Yeah, just they're more familiar with one side. Mm-hmm, so they're mm-hmm. trying to solve the problem on one side by using the other side. Mm. But in fact, you have to solve some large problem for each side. Yeah. The problem will probably be different. You know, uh, um, a, uh, for PayPal, a buyer uh, wants to be able to buy the item, a seller wants to be able to collect money. Mm-hmm. So there's, but you have to solve each, a big problem on each side. Right. Otherwise, you won't get people in. And your own your personal biases or your own affinities end up you coloring your, color, your balance. I find. Uh, teams will be so focused on one side and just make assumptions about the other side. No, you've got to understand what's their biggest problem and how are you going to solve it? Because if you don't solve it, they're not going to come. Um, so I think that's, uh, on each side, there has to be a large problem that you can solve well by participation in the network. And then secondly, there's the thing that you mentioned about the chicken and egg problem, that uh, all networks uh, have a chicken and egg problem that has to be solved first. If you can't start getting scale, you'll never get off the ground because these only work when you start getting volume. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's, I think the, I've not seen good work written outside the company on the ways to crack the chicken and egg problem. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but our strategy team here at Intuit did the best work I've seen. And there's four or five different ways that we've observed that people solve the chicken and egg problem. Um, one is virality. You know, LinkedIn did this where members invited other members. Mm-hmm. Um, another is incentives. Uh, PayPal did this where they paid uh, participants uh, $5 if they brought in a new participant and paid the new pers- uh, participant $5. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, uh, so those are a couple of methods that have been used. Another is the one you mentioned, which is build something of standalone value that works standalone where you don't need the other side. Like Microsoft Word was a very good word processor. You didn't need other word users because you could use printing as the interface. Um, And uh, and that's what we do with QuickBooks. OpenTable did that by first selling a (laughs) software platform to restaurants for managing reservations. And you didn't have to be part of their network for Mm -hmm. that to be of value. Yeah. We've actually got an article called 19 Ways of Solving the Chicken or Egg Problem. Oh, you do? Which well, you've we got should, the best we work then out we there. Should, we should send, yeah, uh, we should that, send that to your the team. The world's needing someone to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we've got uh, some good videos on it as well. It's, it's definitely a big challenge. Um, the, uh, the, the point you make about needing to uh, run two different businesses at the same time, um, you know, often these marketplaces, one side is more important than the other. So it's actually easier to get one side than the other. And in fact, the founder, I've found, needs to develop more affinity for the harder to get one. Because as soon as they get them, the other will typically show up. There are cases where the one side will show up as soon as you get the, the first side. And you've got to figure out how to get the first side. Correct. And, and we've seen a lot of failure in the marketplaces when they have an affinity for the weak side. Right. Yeah. Well uh, said. And we'll actually, we'll actually call them demand-side marketplaces, meaning the demand is what's important on this side, or we'll call them supply-side marketplaces, meaning if you get the supply, the demand will come. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, a good example of that would be a company like Outdoorsy, where there's 35 million people trying to rent an RV, but only 50,000 RVs to be rented in the United States. So if you can just get more supply on that marketplace, you are going to end up with a lot of the demand just mm-hmm. finding you mm-hmm. because they're, they're also looking for it. And I think job boards are similar in a way. Mm-hmm. If you have the jobs, job seekers will find you. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so figuring that out and, and getting people focused on that is, is one of the challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and so who do you turn to for knowledge around network effects? Who do you and your teams turn to? Is it, I mean, Tom Eisenman uh, has written some great things in HBR um, out of Harvard Business School. Um, not since, you know, 2004, 2007. Are there other folks that you can remember reading that you thought were great? Um, there are some academics who are reasonable. Um, Andre Hegu, who's at BU, and Marshall von Alstein, also at BU, have written. Andre's got a book. Um, but again, it's a decade old, I think. Um, and so I think there's good material there. Um, uh, I think the stuff that you guys are producing may be the most current and, uh, and most uh, inclusive, uh, even beyond what I uh, knew. Uh, so I th- that's, I think, where I'd send people first. We found that when the word network effects comes up, we first have to unpack viral effects oh, yes, from network yes, effects. Yes, 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 and yes, certainly yes. viral effects, uh, they're a completely different playbook. They can often be better used on top of things that have network effects simply because of the palette of semantics, the palette of language you can use to develop features and, and, and pathways for people to get viral, but it really is a separate thing. Are, right. And then once you've just been able to identify that, look, network effects are about defensibility and about value creation uh, in your product, then you can start to break it down into its multiple components. Yes, and well it, said. It's yeah. often conflated with something unrelated, Yeah, which is virality. Right. It's great if they happen together, but they don't have to. No. Uh, they're separate effects. That's right. You could actually mm-hmm. buy 
a network effect on a two-sided marketplace. If you have just spent $1,000 to get enough supply, you know, times 1,000 people, that might be enough to get you there. Uh, it doesn't have to be viral at all in yes. order to create a network effect. Mm -hmm. So what advice, uh, Scott, would you give to founders as they're starting their companies, particularly around network effects and their impacts? Well, one would be to figure out early on, is it really a candidate as, an, as a network effect or not? Because just a two-sided business is not a network effect. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's another confusion. A business with two sides may or may not be. I mean, ad, a typical magazine uh, was a two-sided business. You've got readers who read the editorial and advertisers who pay for the advertising. Mm -hmm. So newspapers, magazines are two-sided, but they're not network effects. Mm -hmm. No, there was a little bit of a transportation scale advantage for newspapers at one time, mm -hmm. um, but magazines never had that, which is why there are so many magazines. Mm -hmm. You don't at all see the strength and power and position that uh, nobody in the magazine industry achieved what modern network effects do. Mm -hmm. So just being two-sided does not mean you're a network effect. I think a key to that is understanding multi-homing. Mm -hmm. Is there a natural incentive for the participant or the participants on each side to deal with only one platform. That's single homing, and then there's a much stronger case that you can build a network effect. On the other hand, if the participants on one or both sides can play the field easily, then you're not gonna have that durable advantage. And you see some of this with Lyft and Uber, where it's very easy for drivers, in fact, drivers usually mm. run both. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> travelers, passengers often have both. So it's, um, uh, which is why you have two of them there, yeah. losing money instead of one yeah. that's uh, successful, yeah. uh, profitable at least. Yeah, multi-homing sometimes is called multi-tenanting as well. Yes, yeah. so I think that's an early thing to figure out, to run the test of will this really turn out to be a network effect or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you would have to read up on them. You'd have to think about it. You'd have to study them. You'd have mm -hmm. to see what has produced network effects in the past, if you're a founder, mm -hmm. to try to get a better sense of whether you've really got one or not. Yep. You've got to find people who are knowledgeable about it. And then managing to crack the chicken and egg thing, so reading your article mm -hmm. on the 19 mm -hmm. ways to crack the chicken <laughs> and egg problem. And when you think about these network effect businesses, I mean, eBay obviously um, is now, what, 24 years old or something. Um, what are some of the exemplars you're seeing even more recently? I mean, clearly Slack has got a great direct network effect. They've got some embedding network, they've got some embedding defensibility where they've embedded as enterprise software into these companies. Um, what are some of the companies you look at and say, yeah, boy, those guys are doing it right recently? Well, I, I'm not sure I can tell you who's doing it great. Okay, mm -hmm. I can tell you who seems to be delivering results. So mm -hmm. GitHub would be another. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, the ones that are on people's lips would be, you know, Lyft and Uber and Airbnb. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what other names come to mind among the more recent crop? Uh, well, Instagram, yep. uh, the WhatsApp, <clears throat> yep. uh, to be sure. Yep. In, in China, a number, of, you know, Tencent. And yeah, companies like Dropbox just went public. They've got a nice network effect there between all the sharing that, that goes on. Uh, or you're looking at a Poshmark, will probably go public next year, mm -hmm. two-sided mm -hmm. marketplace maybe even a three-sided marketplace mm -hmm. into your, to your mm -hmm. thing as they add stylists mm -hmm. into their fashion yes. uh, marketplace. Yes. Um, you, know. you think is uh, Rent the Runway turning into uh, a network effect or is that? Doesn't feel like it to me. It feels like more of a sort of uh, e-commerce, direct-to-consumer. They've got a nice spin, they've got a nice pitch, but ultimately they are the ones who are owning the, the objects and then, then renting them out. Certainly if you expand recent to include the last... 12 years, you'd have the um, iOS 
and uh, Android operating systems Absolutely. with their associated uh, app stores. Absolutely. I mean, before, uh, you know, Apple had a market cap of $40 billion. They then added iTunes and jumped to about 60, which iTunes had, had a two-sided network effect for a while there. And then they added iOS and they topped a trillion. I mean, it's as soon as they finally added network effects to their business, you know, they multiplied the value of the company by 10x. What are the impacts of these network effects on society? Because, like you said, a few people can create so much value. A few people can be in control of so much communication between others. Um, you know, many of these companies are based in the Bay Area, and then they're servicing the world from here. Um, have you thought a little bit about what we might expect to see with society and what government needs to do, or the broader impacts of the fact that these things are, are much easier to build than they were 30 years ago before the Internet, and then the incredible power that they create once they are built? I think the longer view would be that there have been in history – uh, this is not unique to our moment. Situations like this have existed for 100, 150 years. They're more common, more walks of life today. But the basic reality, um, uh, you had the Bell Telephone Network, which is where the concept of network effect was named, uh, where uh, one company eventually built a communication network, uh, which had all the characteristics of a modern network effect. Um, uh, you had great concentration of wealth in the oil industry uh, and in railroads. Railroads were monopolizing um, <clears throat> because of the capital requirements. People didn't put tracks next to other tracks, so you sure. tended to have a high share in a f form of communication sure. and transportation. Direct, direct, direct physical yeah, right, network physical. effects, the, the, the core so, most defensible. And these were generally built by very small teams. You know, you had the, uh, the companies might be large, but the owners were concentrated mm -hmm. in the original railroad barons, the uh, the oil barons, you know, like uh, Rockefeller, um, you know, AT&T was for most of my life the largest uh, market cap company in the world. Mm -hmm. So this phenomenon has existed for quite a while. Um, and I think for tremendous societal benefit. Um, I had a, uh, a guy saying, well, you know, they, what's the thing you read that they, they promised us flying cars but they only gave us Facebook. Yeah, or, or 140 characters. <clears throat> yes. And that's one way to view it. But here's another way. So my family and I were vacationing three, four years ago in New Zealand. Uh, and we took a boat ride for a while. And we'd done a hike and then we took the boat back. And I roamed around and met some people on the boat, including four or five Brits who had relocated from the UK to New Zealand about a decade before. And I asked him, well, so how do you like life in New Zealand? And they described all the things they liked. So I then said, so what do you miss about the UK? And one said, oh, there was this pub we used to go to. We really loved that pub. <laughs> and another said, oh, there was this shopping street. We really loved to go to the shopping street. And somebody said something else that was physical. And I said, well, you know what's odd here is you've never mentioned any people, that you miss any people. And I said, no, of course not pulled out their phone. They said, no, they're right here. They're on, they're on Facebook. I, in fact, I see them more now than I did when I lived there. I see them every hour, practically, on Facebook. Every day when I wake up, no, I'm, I, I'm closer to my buds in communication and more frequently than I was when I lived in the UK, thanks to this thing called Facebook. And when you think about it, their predecessors who moved from the UK to New Zealand, say 50 years before, would 
most likely never, ever see their friends and relatives in the UK ever again. They would never talk with them because long distance was so expensive. If they ever talked with them, it would be when somebody died and then for three minutes. Um, they would write letters painfully by hand and then they would take weeks to get there. Um, this, they would never physically see them again. But now we have worldwide free video calling um, and this ongoing register through of life events, through Instagram, through Facebook, for free, for free. Oh my God, what a change this makes to maybe one of the most fundamental human desires, the ability to stay close to those that you know and love, all facilitated by having these global networks on a backbone of, of free digital bits. What? Now, if we were divided into each country's network and they didn't work together or you had stuff like the way telecoms used to be regulated, it wouldn't be. But because these are kind of national organizations which can, ex can take advantage of the power of free, and once you, you – know, it's like science. When you get things to absolute zero, the rules of science change. The rules of physics change at and close to absolute zero. Similarly in economics, the rules of economics start going out the window when you get – to free, and you start getting unlimited supply of free things. So this, uh, this you know, thanks to Skype, global, worldwide, free video calling, uh, Instagram, Facebook, your Twitter, the ability to stay close, closer than even when you are in the same city, without these technologies, is is a, a change to human. We take it for granted now, but if if you would go back fifty years and share what we take for granted and don't even think about to people who are living then, they would say. The, the world could never get that good. Yeah. That's so far beyond any belief. Yeah. Only a god could deliver right. the thing you just described. Yeah. And then you look at the ability to um, get a ride wherever you need it, the ability to find apartments. And for people who have spare apartments to mm -hmm. take advantage of those, to turn those into income, yeah. that's allowing people to stay in their homes longer, mm -hmm. um, and giving people second incomes. Much uh, There's so much unused assets in the world, whether they're second bedrooms, whether they're vehicles, most vehicles sit idle 90-plus percent of the time, whether it's RVs who sit idle most of the time, and enabling, enabling assets bought and paid for to turn into value for the user and for the owner. I mean, this is a miraculous world we get to live in. Oh, think of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a destitute girl in a slum in Bangladesh whose family has a phone and a data plan has more information at her fingertips for free than Bill Clinton had as president. Yeah. Now, you give Bill Clinton's guys and gals two days, they can get a lot of information. But at her fingertips, and for essentially only the cost of the data plan, which particularly like in India now, they have the lowest data plan costs in the world. And that's just any random kid whose parents have a phone, a smartphone. Uh, this is an unbelievable power, thanks to vast contribution um, a network effect around Wikipedia. Yeah, 700,000 people knew where to go, mm -hmm. which was to wikipedia.org, yep. and they knew where to put their time, and they knew it was going to be valuable to other people, and therefore it was valuable to them to spend so, those hours mm -hmm. because they had confidence that that would be the one place that the information would aggregate. And now the woman in Bangladesh can also know that that's where the information is aggregated. And that value to her, that value to the writers, aggregates because we have this concentration. So yes, right. people get worried that we have this concentration of power, this concentration of influence, we also have this 
this flourishing of value. value yeah. The Wikipedia contributors aren't going to contribute to some fractionated thing that nobody comes to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to contribute where the world can see and benefit from their contribution. Mm-hmm. What this has produced is something I wrote about in an article I wrote in 2008, this uh, voluntarism where now millions of people volunteer to help others through these platforms. So the Wikipedia editors and authors don't get paid. Mm-hmm. It's all work for free. Mm-hmm that they do for a sense of social standing, for a sense of contribution, for a sense of benefiting others. We have, we run um, help boards inside Intuit for our customers where customers can ask questions and other customers can answer them, including in areas like tax and small business. And some of our customers will answer thousands of questions from other of our customers. For free. For free. Mm. Uh, we got some of our super users to come to one of our leadership meetings with our execs, and three of them on stage. All of them had answered over 10,000 questions, all three. One school teacher, she gets home, she does her schoolwork and grading, and then into the night, she's answering tax questions. Another guy retired, answers tax questions all day long. Tax questions. Some of them, they have to go research, they have to go into the IRS documents, and that's no fun, to research to get the answers. And, Finally, one of our execs asked, well, why do you do this? Is this the points, the scoreboard, the, the medals, the mm-hmm. badges? They looked at each other and said, yeah, we've, we've seen those badges and scoreboard, but no, this is, this is how I help people. I know about this. I like being able to help people. I can now help thousands of people in a way I could never do just helping my neighbors because of the size of these platforms. It's uncorked the degree of volunteerism um, uh, unprecedented in world yeah. history. Yeah, really, really giving people opportunity to feel meaning. Yes, and value in themselves. Right, and self-respect through yes. these platforms yes. as well. Yes. So all those benefits come to to counter some of the concerns that uh, people have politically about some of these really powerful concentrations. I agree with you. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Both is true. What a world we get to live in. It's true. Wow. All true. All driven by network effect businesses. Boy, you compare back to. 50 years ago, so what would that be, 1968, one, a phone wired to the wall, one phone in the household, cars that broke all the time, uh, one TV, a big hunkin' box, three channels, you took what they gave you, uh, and if you stepped away, you lost it forever. Yes. Uh, oh, boy, a phone call, long distance, so expensive that, you know, practically someone had to die or get married before there'd be a call. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> just that's just 50 years ago in the lives of us or our parents how the world has changed uh one encyclopedia now getting out of date every year mm. sitting on mm. uh on the shelf uh painfully slow no links so uh, no way to link between you're interested in something you couldn't follow because there were no links uh wow you, uh, no youtube if you want to learn something i mean uh, no khan academy mm. so you had to sign up to school or something. You couldn't just learn on the spot. Well, now you've got learning at your fingertips 24 hours a day for free. Yeah, and wow. we all know to go to YouTube. Right. And right. all the people who make that stuff know to put it on YouTube because that's YouTube. where we'll be. Yes, yes. Uh, and again, if there was no YouTube, it wouldn't be there. There wouldn't be a place for it. So, yeah, what a world we get to live in. Well, um, Scott, this has been great. Mm-hmm. Great to catch up with you. That's it. This is great. Good to see Good you. Stuff. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. And look forward to more conversations like this. I'll, I'll keep learning from you. <laughs>